be here next Sunday. And there are stalls and family fun. Um, <laughs> and details in your bulletin. All right. I think... Ready to go? Ready to go. All right, excellent. I'm going to pray, and um, then we're going to uh, get into God's Word. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us together as a body of your people. We ask that you open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Unusually short Bible reading for me today, I know, but don't be alarmed. I'm going somewhere. A couple of years ago, the Wall Street Journal reported this compelling story. On August 4th, Graham and Cheryl Anley, while yachting off the coast of South Africa, hit a reef capsizing their boat. As the boat threatened to sink and they scrambled to get off it, Cheryl's safety line snagged on something, trapping her there. Instead of freeing his wife and getting her to shore, Graham grabbed Rosie, their Jack Russell Terrier. Now, one media account reported that Cheryl had insisted that the dog go first. With Rosie safe and sound, however, Graham was able to get back and return for Cheryl. All were doing fine after, as of August 2013. Now, there is, however, something kind of messed up about this story. And it depends on that one account. Uh, either the husband, Graham, instinctively feared more for the safety of his dog than the woman he married, or else she did insist that they take the dog first, and he conceded, in which case they both placed the safety and survival of their dog above hers. And this is doubly suspicious to me because, gentlemen, back me up. That sounds like a trap, right? <laughs> He's got to be very careful about how quickly he agrees to that, even if he does. But this is not an unusual sentiment. If you have a dog, you probably love your dog. If you have a cat, if you're a cat person, you probably love your cat. Part of the amazing experience of being a human being is this ability to transpose ourselves, to place our sense of worth and meaning on just about anything in our lives, anything we choose around us, ideally our family and our friends. In most cases, healthy, well-adjusted people also to their pets. In the case of some obsessive weirdos, collectible action figures, perhaps their cars. It is a normal, God-given way to use our capacity for love for his glory when we do it right. But it doesn't require a great deal of imagination to see how this could have gone terribly wrong for Graham and Cheryl and Rosie, the Jack Russell Terrier, because of a poor use of this emotional potential and a poor stewardship of the emotion that God had given them. We're about halfway through our series on transformation. Uh, we've talked about spiritual transformation, physical transformation, mental transformation. Uh, we have yet to come vocational transformation, financial transformation, and one more. Blanking. He's mouthing it. No. Okay, Dave Butterfield is hanging me out to dry. That's fine. <laughs> and an additional form of transformation you'll have to show up to learn about. The secret transformation. Anyway, whole life transformation is the point. This week we're talking about emotional transformation, what it means to be transformed by his spirit and to live according to his word and how that impacts our emotions, how we should regard the way we feel and how we should be emotionally healthy as followers of Christ. 
And I want to talk about it in two main categories here. And they both begin with the letter G, guard and guide. To guard and guide. Both of these are a sign of emotional health and something we should be striving toward. The first is guard. That is, emotional health guards us against our emotions. Our emotional health can guard us against our emotions when they steer us wrong. I bring up guarding against our emotions because often the first defense that a sinner has is an emotional one when they're called to account for what they've done. It's possible to allow our emotions to dictate our actions, to allow our emotional compass rather than our moral compass to decide how we are going to act. And then the excuse goes as follows. I was angry, so I hit the guy. I was lonely, so I stayed. I was afraid, so I ran. I was in love, so I lied. And Jeremiah 17:9, as we read, says this. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? Pretty sharp indictment of the heart of man. And this may be one of the most subversive passages in all of Scripture, certainly at least in our modern context. This idea that our feelings can be secondary to what is morally true, that the things that we feel that we know deep down may be wrong, and we may need something else to guide us to the right action. Here's another example, and a reason why I started with the dog example earlier on. Dennis Prager, an American radio, uh, radio talk show host, he's been doing guest speaking arrangements for, uh, for high schools in the States for 40 years. He likes to ask them a, a similar batch of questions. And uh, he says that he's been getting the same result for about the 40 years. And this is the, the big one. He would ask a classroom of kids this hypothetical situation. Picture your neighborhood is flooded. Water everywhere and floating along down beside you, near where you stand on firm ground, are two figures. A stranger you've never met and your beloved pet dog. You see where this is going, giving only one opportunity to save one of them. Who do you save? A third of students say the dog. Another third of students say the stranger, and another third then say that the situation is too difficult for them to contemplate, and they can't give an answer. That is, two out of three high school students who cannot do the math to decide that a human being is of a higher worth than a dog, regardless of how much you love it. Now, God's word tells us that we are made in the image of God. And that all of creation is a kind of frame in which we are placed. And this teaching can help to guard us against emotion that can work against us in situations like this admittedly far-fetched scenario. But this is the hypothetical from which we can derive the rule. Because it's not about how you appropriately love in this situation. I mean, we say we do, we do need to love one another and to love the stranger. That is a commandment we are given. But the love that we have for the stranger is a principled one, a kind of an abstract one. And really, let's be honest, it's just you and me here. You will love your dog more than you will love a stranger. 
You know your dog. You see your dog every day. It's always very happy to see you. But that love alone is not a good enough guide on how to act. We need God's law and God's guidance to act correctly. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, where Moses is getting ready to leave the Israelites and he's trying to build them up so that they can hopefully go on their way and follow God. They can stand up and and be worthy of his name. Moses passes on this word from God to them. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. If it was emotionally intuitive to do the right thing, if we could look inside ourselves into our heart and get the right answer, why would we need to teach so aggressively what is right and wrong? This is not a small operation. Morality, a life in keeping with what God wants for us, is not intuitively known. C.S. Lewis, the uh, writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, as we uh, like to remember, but also in his excellent book, Mere Christianity, he suggests that morality, choosing the right action, is like math. In that the laws of mathematics and the laws of God are both true, whether or not you know them. But you do need to be taught them if you are going to know them. You do need to be taught them. And if we're living in pursuit of his word, in prayer, in devotion to our Lord above all things, then it does us well to keep our moral compass in working order as a guard against sometimes dangerous sentiment that may lead us astray. So that's when our emotions conflict with what God commands. And when that happens, we need to have the emotional health, the maturity to restrain our feelings, however afraid or angry or compassionate, we may feel. It's better to obey the Lord. Now the good news about that is the more you get to know the Lord, the better you are spending time with him, pursuing that spiritual health, the more your emotional compass naturally lines up with the moral compass, the less often that comes into conflict. But when there is a discrepancy, when something does Uh, not quite line up, and our heart says to go left, and God says to go right, we need to have that emotional strength, that emotional health, to sometimes drag our heart, kicking and screaming, in the way God wants us to go. And it cannot be understated how much this contradicts what our culture tells us to do. In 1988, the hit band Roxette implored their fans to listen to their heart, When he's calling for you, listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. Bad call, Roxette. Your heart is not built for that. Four years later, Disney's street rat Aladdin would ask Princess Jasmine amidst their magic carpet ride, tell me, Princess, when did you last let your heart decide? Steady on, Aladdin. That's pagan talk. There's a reason the sultan didn't teach her to let her heart decide. 
When we are emotionally healthy, we have a guard against our emotions when they would otherwise steer us away from God. Emotional health means being guarded from dangerous emotions sometimes, and now taking that idea and completely reversing it, just for a change. Being emotionally healthy also means that we have a guide in embracing our emotions. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, as we read earlier, says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now hang on, what's happening here? We've just looked at how God's laws, his morality, the way he desires for us to live can conflict with our emotional compass. And so we need to be guarded. But this passage seems to suggest that a tenderness to feeling, a sensitivity, is necessary to follow God's decrees and his laws. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's hard to read that any other way than God promising his people, I will soften you again. I will make you more sensitive, more responsive, more compassionate, more able to receive and execute my word. So there must be either some way to reconcile these two ideas or I've preached myself into a corner and this will be a very short sermon. Now, so far, I've done a fairly unusual thing for a preacher to do, which is spend a good deal of time decrying the deceptive power of love and compassion. But I haven't gone completely mad. God is love, and his greatest commands are for us to love him and love one another. Now, often when we preach that, we emphasize the action, love as a verb, act lovingly. This is true, but there's a presupposition that we smuggle in, that we can't neglect. The action is meant to go hand in hand with the emotion. We act lovingly naturally to those we love. You don't need to be commanded to act lovingly to those you love. We're commanded to act lovingly to our neighbor, to the stranger, to those it is not necessarily natural to act lovingly to, with the expectation that love will follow. And remember, we mentioned earlier how humans have this capacity to identify with, to attach themselves with just about anyone and anything, to feel sympathy and affection for those it is not necessarily intuitive for them to feel sympathy and affection with. The obvious example is pets. My favorite example is cars, because I cannot relate. And it's fun for me to tease car fanatics. There's a wonderful website called rectexotics.com. It's just what it sounds like. Thousands of pictures of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cars <coughs> destroyed. And there's nothing like going to a car lover and showing them a picture of a $400,000 vehicle lovingly installed into a telephone pole. It breaks their heart. It physically repulses them. Ugh. Like garlic to a vampire. <laughs> now that's a trivial example. But the principle extends. We are so good at empathy that we can extend it to things that aren't even alive. If you watched the TV show Hoarders at one time, you know that people can be so emotionally sick that they can invest themselves in rooms full of old newspapers and garbage 
This is a misuse of this divinely appointed feature of our heart. In ancient times, this misuse was driven by fear. Today, it tends to be driven by comfort and desire. But in all cases, we have classically called this kind of emotional sickness idolatry. Idolatry being this passionate devotion to something, some person, some idea that undercuts our devotion to God. Now, if I may be bold enough to speak fairly frankly about a matter that we usually talk about in a specked way, this is which different streams of churches uh, will strike differently. When evangelical church and their preachers and their, their particularly Bible-loving conservative members, when they look with concern at a nearby Pentecostal or charismatic church, this is the kind of thing they are worried about. A concern that a passionate devotion for music or celebration might have snuck in somehow to the people of God and gotten in between what might be more primary, for example, a, a desire to get to know his word or the character of Christ. And such people, I suppose myself, I am myself among them, were worried some point after a certain number of worship services, putting one's hands in the air as if they just didn't care. The passion will deplete and the individual believer will find themselves with nothing connecting them to their faith and they will leave, never to return. By contrast, when the Pentecostal or charismatic church looks around the corner and sees a Bible-loving conservative church, perhaps like ours, they have the opposite concern for us. They see a people who they think may be so emotionally detached from the idea that they have been delivered from hellfire that the contemplation of that is routine now somehow. They worry about the kind of believer that could get it, that could really get it, that they have been saved from sin and death by the sacrifice of the Son of God and then not be moved passionately or even physically to worship. To obscurely reference yet another 90s musical landmark, Christ's cross will make you jump, jump. Now, as a Bible-loving conservative Christian, lest I get too high and mighty, I am forced to acknowledge there is something to this. At Bible college earlier this year, I was privileged to attend and take part in a service shortly before uh, Good Friday. I was there with my pastoral care group, a, a mixed bag of students between the ages of 18 and 40, and at various levels of involvement in ministry and various backgrounds. And just for some context, I appear to be myself the crusty old man of that group. Now we have a we we did a reflectional survey early on in the uh, in the semester and detailing the different ways one might find themselves feeling closer to God. This is just for clarity. And I tick all the boxes that say things like I like reading interesting theological stuff. I enjoy stroking my chin and reading theological texts and apologetic texts. I feel closest to God when He is teaching me something new about Him that I didn't know before. And everyone else in the group ticks the boxes that say things like, I like going for long walks in nature to feel close to God. I feel closest when I am lost in worship. Or I feel closest to God when I am doing some manner of art project. Now, of course, to me, I hear all this and it sounds to me like, I feel closest to God when I am refusing to shower and weaving a poncho out of hemp. 
My mind says, what is this hippie garbage? You read the book and you do what it says. You meet him at Calvary, not Woodstock. But I digress. I'm sitting in the front row during this service next to a young guy from my group, a 20-something guy called Nick. Very emotionally sensitive guy. One of these guys who just seems to drift from encounter to encounter, always marveling at the people they meet. Sweetest guy you will ever meet. The kind of young Christian that seems to be a type of, who seems perpetually amazed at the truth of the gospel, but it just never occurs to him that he should probably wear shoes. That kind of guy. And I sit next to him in the front row, and the communion elements are distributed, and they're playing a cut-together video of a video segment about the crucifixion, using uh, portions from the, the Passion of the Christ, and in fact, the, the Jesus film. Um, and I watch, and I'm reflecting to myself, and I'm thinking, I wonder if the, if the terribly ultra-real, uh, bloody crucifixion portrayal in the, in the Passion is more effective at sharing the gospel message than the comparatively tame but still, uh, still gospel-accurate um, older Jesus film. And Nick is sitting beside me, shoeless, watching, kind of mouthing along to the music that's playing at the time. And he becomes progressively more and more distressed until he just hangs his head and quietly sobs. He was so genuinely overwhelmed by this presentation of the message of Christ's crucifixion that he was moved inconsolably for that moment to tears. I'm there chipping away at my master's. This guy's here in the first year of his diploma. He cannot possibly understand as well as I do how I know that Christians have gone back and forth and whether the communion elements we just distributed are transubstantiated or if they are symbolically endowed with Christ's person. He cannot possibly know, as I do, about the gory details of Roman crucifixion and the interesting legal loopholes that meant that they could crucify Peter but not Paul. And I've been walking with God for just a little bit less than he had been walking upright. But I don't think I've ever been quite as jealous of a human being as I was of Nick in that moment. Because if the body of believers gathered together to remember the agony and sacrifice of our Lord, that agony endured on our behalf on this particular holiday we set aside to most keenly remember it. If that is not worth a man's tears, what is? And if I have let my ability to emphasize with the suffering of my Lord, to empathize with the suffering of my Lord, to become dull, then how can I possibly represent him to other people? How can I be a messenger of his word? This is what I like to think of as a 1 Corinthians 13 gong moment. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have, I gain nothing. Passion unchecked can become idolatry, but emotionally transformed Christians can be guided. They have the passion 
in their lives as a tool, as a servant of Christ in their heart. They have the word and the spirit as not just a guard, but a guide to embracing their own emotional strength because their passions aren't random as we talk about them, as if they are. You may encourage young people to do in their life what they are passionate about, as if you were dealt half a dozen passions at the beginning of your life and that was meant to last you the whole run. But if we devote ourselves to something, we become passionate about it. Now, managers call this attitude when they are talking about their staff. The girl with the bad attitude does badly. The girl with the good attitude does better. An attitude trumps aptitude every time. The girl who comes 15 minutes late every day texts her way through exactly eight hours of work and then is out of the parking lot three or four seconds before her shadow has a bad attitude for work. By contrast, the girl who turns up 15 minutes early, who devotes herself to tasks she is given, and who waits to see the shift manager lock the door before she leaves, has a good attitude. She is willing to invest herself in the work. She is choosing to engage. She probably didn't start at this job emotionally invested. Develop her passion because her attitude towards her work has allowed her to emotionally grow. And just so with our relationship to scripture and walking with God. Being emotionally transformed means understanding that we have some control over our own passions. And using God's commands and desires, we can embrace our emotions and they can work for us. The more involved you choose to become, for example, in a particular ministry, the more passionate you tend to become about it. Or just little elements of living as a follower of Christ, getting to church on time, for example, loving your life group, doing charitable work, worshipping with tearful enthusiasm. Our faith cannot rely on emotion. It does not have emotion as a base, but our emotion must be guided by our faith. Our faith can't rely on emotion, but it must, our emotion must be guided by our faith. So we've talked about guarding against our emotions and guiding our embrace of them. I'd be remiss not to mention the role marriage seems destined to play in this. I'm going a little bit out of my uh, experiential wheelhouse here, but if you have complaints, let me know afterwards. And I may engage in just a couple of stereotypes here. If this doesn't apply to your marriage specifically, interpolate. I'm speaking in generalities. But by and large, women tend to be better at marshalling emotion and embracing it than men are. Women tend to understand how their emotions fit together better than men do. When they have an emotional problem, it is in their nature to say, I need to talk about this. Men have a hilarious tendency to have an emotional problem and then decide, I am having a problem, I need to act. Right now. This is why 90% of the people in counselling are women, and 90% of the people in jail are men. At its unhealthiest, this emotional capacity, this empathy, can lead young women to make bad decisions in choosing irresponsible, lazy men with the idea that they can fix them up. 
At its healthiest, however, women completely civilize men. They help us to understand where we are being blunt or lazy or otherwise cavemanish. They drive us to be better men because we want them so badly to be proud of us. Now, on the flip side of that, when it's not guidance in emotion but guarding against it that is the concern, men tend to have the edge. When an abundance of feeling would steer a couple wrong, it is typically the man's role to be the anchor. If the family needs to pull up stumps and move across the country for work, it's typically the man's pragmatic conviction that needs to push through the spiking family fears that maybe we'll never make new friends on the other side or we don't know the new city. When some emotionally shattering event hits the couple, it is the man's inclination, typically speaking, towards quiet strength. Now, at its unhealthiest, this can lead young men to make bad decisions with emotionally volatile women under the idea that he can stabilize her and then he can fix her. At its healthiest, men offer women a kind of consistency and groundedness that isn't necessarily available when they're so good at emotionally investing in people. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I have personally figured out the male-female dynamic that has vexed and delighted mankind for thousands of years. But it does seem to me that God has set up marriage of man and woman to capture both of these capacities. Men to stabilize women, women to civilize men. It is not good for man to be alone, says God in Genesis chapter 2 shortly before he creates Eve, and I suspect he knew what he was doing. And it's worth more than a little of our consideration. Being emotionally healthy as a transformed believer means you are not ruled by your emotions. You are guarded against them. And those emotions serve you in pursuit of a godly life. You have a guide in embracing them. So how do we get to that point of emotional health? What way do we go? What thing do we do to get there? I'm afraid that is not an easy answer. There is no one weird tip that will get that to happen. But it's rooted in obedience to God's word and devotion to him above all things. As soon as we start thinking of our emotions not as our guiding heart, but as a force that can be destructive and can be constructive in our life, and we submit that to God, then we can begin to match our instinct to his word to accept his law on matters that might be confusing or painful to us, to pray that he breaks open our hearts for the things that break his. This is a live and learn thing, and it tends to happen more slowly than we realize. But we do at least get the privilege of looking back and seeing the work he's done on us in retrospect. I can't believe how I used to care so much about those silly things. Or how could I have possibly gone this long without realizing how important this is? We love our Lord because he saved us. And we're better able to love others as his spirit transforms us. So let's pray together that his desires and his instincts and emotions will be pressed to our hearts. And that our hearts will be guarded and guided to follow after the heart of our Savior.
Let's pray. Father God, you're our king and everything we have is a tribute to you. We give up our fears about our lives, our passion for things that interest us, even the love that we have for your son, our savior. This is a tribute to you. Work in us by your spirit and in those godly brothers and sisters with whom you surround us, Lord, to guard us against sentiment that would take us away from your path, but also to guide us in our thoughts and our attitudes so that our heart's feeling can run according to your will and the passions that you would have us take up. You have renewed our hearts, Lord. We offer them now up to you again. In Jesus' name, amen.